Hello, and welcome to In Reality, the podcast about power, truth, and media. I'm Eric Schoenberg, the former CEO of Inc. and Fast Company. Today's guest is Melanie Smith. Melanie is head of the Digital Analysis Unit at the London-based Institute for Strategic Dialogue, or ISD. ISD is an independent, nonprofit organization dedicated to safeguarding human rights and reversing the rising tide of polarization, extremism, and disinformation worldwide. Certainly a worthy goal. Uh, Before that, Melanie was the director of analysis at Graphica, the network analysis firm where she focused on online recruiting, disinformation, and election integrity. So ISC does a lot of work on radicalization and disinformation and started doing so with a focus on places like Syria and more recently in Russia and Ukraine. But one thing Melanie and I will talk about today is how the threat of radicalization and violence has shifted from foreign actors to domestic ones. Now, as I speak, we're just a day after the January 6th commission interviewed members of radical right groups who participated in the riot at the Capitol. Now, if you think about the disinformation around that dark day in American history, those protesters, those people who were interviewed by the January 6th Commission believed that the 2020 election had been stolen. That is a falsehood that was propagated by the president and the right-wing media, but these actors sincerely believed it. They had been convinced and felt that they were led to the Capitol by the president's own statements. It is extraordinary and think about the president of the United States triggering an insurrection against the government that he was sworn to lead. The fact that that is not widely covered in the right-wing media is extraordinary. The mainstream media covers nothing but, uh, and understandably so. And yet just a, a glance at the Fox News homepage today shows not a mention of the January 6th commission at all, or any of the stunning revelations that came out of yesterday's hearings, uh, including not just the interviews with the, uh, the radical protesters, but also the meeting between Sidney Powell, uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani, and other members of Trump's legal team that devolved into a shouting match about some of the lunatic ideas that they had for overturning the election. Uh, that is, they being Sidney Powell, Giuliani and others. There are really two different realities and this moment in our history shows up particularly well. I also just returned from a couple of conferences abroad and was reminded how shocking it is to people outside the US to have witnessed the January 6th riots. This is not the idea that people outside of the US have about the world's most powerful democracy. It is a stunning reminder of how far off the rails the disinformation campaigns domestically have allowed us to move. But with that, let's move on to the interview with Melanie Smith, the head of digital analysis at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. By the way, this podcast was recorded at the big tech conference in Toronto known as Collision, so you'll hear a bit of background noise. And now, here's Melanie Smith. We're here at the Collision Conference in Toronto, which uh, accounts for some of the noise in the background, but we trust everyone can hear us. So welcome, Melanie. 
Thank you very much for having me. You have been in the field of countering disinformation and misinformation long before I got involved. For me, the triggering event was January 6th when I felt like this was an all hands on deck moment. For you, was there some similar triggering event that got you interested in, in doing this good work? There wasn't a specific event that I can recall, but I was working in the field of countering extremism and countering violent extremism since about 2015. And when I began working for a network analytics company, I realized that there was a lot of overlap in terms of the tactics and procedures that were being used to mainstream extremist content and spread disinformation. So it became kind of a focus about state-sponsored disinformation originally and has evolved really to look at domestic spread of disinformation in the US and election integrity. Uh, yeah, tell me about that, that evolution. It seems like when uh, ISD was started, there must have been, I mean, there obviously was a lot of concern about Islamic extremism and the terrorism and the, and the damage that they could do. Was it hard to convince clients that the, the danger had shifted to domestic terrorism and domestic extremism? Absolutely. It was really difficult. Um, I think one of the major struggles that we had just in terms of funding is that ISD doesn't work with governments. Governments are very difficult to convince that there is a domestic extremism problem. And even when they may be convinced of such, it's pretty unclear at times whose responsibility that falls under. So in the US, for example, you obviously have different government agencies that are responsible for different things. And domestic terrorism was something that was deprioritized after Trump's election in 2016 for a good few years. And we're only really seeing that funding start back up again now. Um, obviously, with January 6th happening, that's happening more quickly than we thought it might have done. But it's the same problem really everywhere you look. Um, in France and Germany and in the UK, they have a little bit more of a legacy of investigating and trying to understand the problem of domestic extremism. But particularly in the US, it's been difficult. Who does fund ISD? Um, a range of different donors. We have money from philanthropy, so particularly um, old media philanthropy, which is incredibly helpful because it puts the focus on digital literacy and media literacy and trust. And we do take money from governments, but we're very specific about who we will allow to fund us to, to fund us and not. And historically, we tried to work in pretty good faith with social media platforms. And we did have various areas of programming that were in part funded by them, but that is no longer. So tell me what the day is like for, for you and for members of your team. I, I imagine people sitting in front of monitors and looking at news feeds or dark web sites or things like that. How accurate is that picture? What's it really like? It's not far off. Um, I run the digital analysis unit at ISD, and a lot of our work is focused on monitoring. So that vision that you have in your mind of people sat in front of multiple monitors looking at dark spaces of the internet is actually quite true. So we spend a lot of time doing that, and we believe that you can only really get a full understanding of what's happening in these spaces by having people watch them and having humans watch them as opposed to machines doing detection. Um, so we combine a couple of different approaches, but that human-centric one is really important to me. Do you use AI at all to monitor, or at least to filter for harmful content? We use machine learning algorithms. Um, ISD has a really amazing partnership that we've been running for about five years now with CASM, the Center for the Analysis of Social Media. 
and we partner with them on developing new pieces of technology that are able to detect this type of content. But again, having worked for a tech company that does something similar, it's very important to have those processes really center the human and center human analysis. And I found that to be the most successful approach to detecting, but also just kind of understanding what the problem looks like on social media. Obviously, the social media platforms are, are at the center of this battle. Their participation is crucial. And, and yet you see many cases for all the protestations from the platforms that they're doing the best they can and hiring thousands of people and spending millions of dollars, that it's still a losing battle. They, the Buffalo Shooters video has been shared many times despite the efforts of the, plat the original platform when it was posted to take it down. And, you know, there are similar cases. A, a report that you shared with me about Russian disinformation around the atrocities at Bucha in Ukraine shows that, that the, the platforms have not even been able to enforce their own standards. How would you characterize their efforts? Are they well-intentioned but inept? Are they overwhelmed? Are they half-hearted? It's something that we think about a lot. The intention is the most difficult piece to pin down. I believe that at least the people that work within policy teams and within threat intelligence at the major platforms, just talking about the mainstream ones for now, are well-intentioned and are hopeful that they can remove this type of content before it becomes a problem. Obviously, volume is a major factor here. And when you have something like the Buffalo Shooter video, platforms have to respond very quickly and very comprehensively to what they're seeing. And we've seen users get smarter and smarter over the years about how they share this content and how they evade the policies that have been put in place. And that's a major problem. However, I think that there is much more that they could be doing to develop automated detection and just to apply their policies consistently. We often see these policy developments, we read the press releases and we think, wow, that sounds great. And then six months down the line, you put it to the test and realize that it's not being carried out comprehensively and it's not really having the impact that was desired. So it looks more like a PR exercise a lot of the time. Is one platform better than another? One platform that I would love to give a shout out to is Pinterest. They're here today. I visited their booth and spoke to someone that works at Pinterest about their policies. They're extremely reactive to current events and geopolitical events, and they're not worried about taking a stand. I think one of the major things is companies being seen as political or partisan or taking one side of the debate. But when it comes to things like public health disinformation, there really isn't a side of the debate. There is just truth and fact and science and then everything else. And Pinterest was one of the first platforms to wholeheartedly take a stance and remove COVID disinformation and vaccine misinformation. And they'd actually been doing that work to automate the detection of vaccine misinformation well before COVID. So they were very well set up to actually kind of take that and run with it when the pandemic hit. And they've been one of the first platforms to come up with a comprehensive policy around climate change misinformation, which we see a ton of on mainstream platforms. And obviously, it's a platform that's not necessarily used for people to message each other or to have a news feed. But I think it provides a really good model for taking some of this extremely seriously. One of the things that came out of Francis Hogan's revelations was the damage that Instagram, Facebook company, was doing to 
body image, especially among young women. That seems like that would be something that could be a risk at Pinterest, but Pinterest is able to head that off. They do their best. There's certainly content that still exists on the platform that um, would be kind of determined as glamorizing eating disorders or um, but they're really good about informing users of sources, which I think is a really important part of this. Often when we see content being shared on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, it's really difficult as a user to tell where it's come from or how many times it's been shared or how viral it's gone or who originally wrote the post. And Pinterest actually makes that quite easy. So there are a couple of things that they've done with the, how the platform is engineered that I think may make the user experience uh, disincentivizing for sharing disinformation. Could that kind of transparency be adapted to by the other platforms? Absolutely. And why, why hasn't it been? Good question. <laughs> I'll ask them. Um, I think one of the major things that we see just in terms of user experience is that the mainstream platforms have made a big effort to label content that they won't necessarily remove, but they want to give the user more information about. So we see this kind of state media label often when we're looking at state-sponsored articles from outlets like RT and Sputnik and CGTN. But we don't actually have any transparency around from them around whether it actually works. Does it disincentivize the user? And as a user of many platforms, I can tell you that it makes me think twice, but I don't know if that holds across the millions and billions of people that use these platforms. So we don't really have any insight into what's working and what isn't. And I think that kind of willingness to put up your hands and say, we tried this and it didn't work how we thought it was going to, is actually really helpful for the debate, but we don't get that. It's often closed doors. My impression is research says that it doesn't work very well and that if you're down the rabbit hole, uh, a warning about the truthfulness of a post is, if anything, red meat that makes it sort of more enjoyable. I definitely agree with that, but I do think there's this kind of slice of the user market that is more focused, our strategy there should be more focused around them not seeing the content in the first place. So if you're not down the rabbit hole, what do we do about those people that are kind of on the precipice who are being reached with disinformation, misinformation content that otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to it? And I think the labeling in that case, like I would love to do a test study if I had access to the data that I needed to try and understand, you know, people that are QAnon adherents, for example, is it disincentivizing to them to have those kind of user-led experiences on the platform? Or, you know, what does that look like for somebody who is a center-left Democrat voter, etc.? So there's some important research to be done, but unfortunately we don't hold the data for it right now. Uh, let's talk about the, the ecosystem among the, the counter-disinformation world. How would you compare ISD with other research organizations and other content analyzers? So, you know, I think of uh, Stanford's Internet Observatory or, or Harvard's Shorenstein Center's um, Technology and Social Change group, and then Kinzen in, in, uh, in Ireland or logically in the UK. I worry sometimes about duplication of efforts and whether coordination is happening. What's your impression? There certainly is some coordination happening. I would put ISD in a slightly different bucket from the ones that you mentioned, just because we're not an academic institution, so we're not affiliated with a university, but we are partnering often with academic institutions to kind of give us a slightly different research emphasis. And I think places like Kinzen do a really incredible job that is relatively specific to content moderation. So ISD's programming ranges very broadly. The research that 
I and my team do is focused in this kind of analysis lane. We also have an advisory lane, which is about digital policy, and another lane, which is about action, which is kind of education and programming and network and capacity building work. So there's this kind of three, we call them the three A's, but the three A's approach at ISD that I think there are other organizations and other companies that do maybe one of those, but maybe don't connect the dots between the others. Um, but we are always down to partner. We have lots of partners in that space and very happy to do so. Um, in my previous job at Graphica, which is a network analytics firm, I worked quite closely with Stanford Internet Observatory on their election integrity partnership and on the virality project, which was focused on COVID. Um, and yeah, always really happy to do that. What are the three A's? Would you explain again? So analysis, advisory, and action. So advisory is aimed at policymakers? Yes. It's, uh, most of the work that we do in that space right now is digital policy focused within Europe and within the US to try and kind of understand what the landscape looks like for legislation around some of these issues and where ISD can be helpful in terms of plugging in our understanding of what's actually happening online with what should be done about it. How would you describe the landscape right now? It's pretty dire. I hate to be the harbinger of doom all the time, but when I'm asked that question, it's difficult not to be. I think particularly with the work that we're doing in the US and in Western Europe, we're at a pretty crucial juncture in terms of democracy and political violence. And I think you only really have to look back to the last two months of mass shootings and terrorist attacks to kind of understand that there is such a close relationship between what's happening online and what's happening offline now. And where we see that gap in moderation and content not being removed that should be, it, it really is quite alarming to understanding how quickly those things turn into real world impact. And yet the willingness of policymakers to act seems not to match the, the, the direness of the situation, it seems. I definitely think that's true within the US, and obviously that's a, a very different market when we're talking about partisanship and how legislation gets passed. But we have seen some real progress in the EU with the Digital Services Act, which is kind of moving through at the moment. And there's a few um, pieces of the act that I think are really important. One of them I've already mentioned is giving researchers greater access to data to be able to understand what this landscape looks like from the company's point of view. And we also have the online safety bill in the UK, which is not modeled on the DSA, but it's relatively similar. That I think actually also has some quite promising practices in terms of holding big tech to account for not doing enough or doing the wrong thing. Do you think that legislation that's passed in the EU or the UK will have a spillover effect and just be adopted by the companies across the board? or will they have different standards in the US and Canada compared to the rest of the world? They certainly have a different standard, mostly because of the First Amendment and what's kind of you know, protected under that versus what isn't. But I think it's important to remember that most of these are North American-owned companies and they have a slightly different philosophy with regard to things like hate speech, which kind of has to be incorporated here. My sense is that if they build out some of the infrastructure that's necessary to meet the demands of the DSA and the online safety bill, it would be silly to not use it elsewhere. It's going to be a big investment on their part in terms of teams and training and really understanding like how do we build this out in a way that's comprehensive. So I think it will just take a little bit of pressure from the US side to get them to conform to that. One of the, the A's, does that cover 
what you might consider news literacy, media literacy, Be and how action. does action? How does that how does that fit into the uh, to the whole sort of um, spectrum of counter misinformation? It, unlike policy making, say, or or research and content moderation, it's not done by organizations. It's sort of done at the individual level, or or at least at the educational level. How does it how does it work, and how does it scale? How does it scale is the important part of that. I definitely agree. Um, I think that digital literacy and media literacy has been lent on in quite a big way over the last few years by people saying, you know, we need to do something, but we're not really sure what. And it's a logical step to take. We definitely need that in a lot of institutions. But those programs also have historically tended to gear towards children and young adults. And I think we forget that a lot of people spreading misinformation unknowingly online are adults. Um, and particularly when you look at the demographics, it makes sense to actually try and engage people you know, over the age of 50, for example. So some of the work that we've done uh, in countries like Germany focuses on that older bracket. How do we get people to understand what they're seeing online? People that aren't digital natives, didn't grow up with social media, may need a little bit more help understanding how things get shared, what the sources might look like, and really how information manipulation works. I don't think anybody wants to be told you're sharing things that are patently false when they're not intending to. So there's just a, that kind of, that crucial step of education needs to happen, I think, across the board in a much more comprehensive way. And I don't think we are able to scale that without serious funding, which is something that has been relatively patchy for the last few years. Along the same lines, on an individual encounter, what's your recommendation for how to talk to someone who is deluded how can you have a positive effect and stand up for truth without making the situation worse? That's a really good question, and I think one that we've heard a lot in the last few years, particularly since uh, November 2020, people saying, you know, my uncle, my aunt, those personal stories have really brought this home for a lot of people in a way that I think is really impactful and has actually kind of woken us up to how difficult this challenge is. My advice is just to be empathetic People don't like being told that they're wrong about something that they really, truly believe in. I think unpacking the sources of information is really, really important and not something that we focus on enough. Getting people to understand where their news is coming from, asking people how much time they're spending on social media versus talking to their family versus talking to people in their community. And that the kind of local journalism piece also comes in here quite strongly, where there has been this kind of degradation of local journalism in many communities and that really acted as a bulwark for what is verified reporting and what isn't. So kind of just understanding how people get their news, um, asking them whether they're trying to unpack whether the things that they believe are really motivated by fear or outrage or anger in some way and really like just a piece of education about them understanding that the platforms are incentivized to share things with you that capitalize upon those feelings. So I think there's a lot to unpack, particularly in the US and Canadian space, about how the last few years has been for people that spend a lot of time on social media around a ton of different issues. But I think just approaching people with empathy, not telling people outright, I don't believe you, you're wrong, and trying to understand where it comes from is really important. I would say that the, the measures of protection, just to focus on one, election integrity, has improved drastically since 2016. And yet the adversaries are increasingly clever and sophisticated in their ability to go around the countermeasures or, or uh, even their wealth that they invest in different kinds of disinformation. 
Um, from where you sit, looking out five or ten years, are you optimistic or pessimistic? I'm optimistic about the ten years, fam. I wouldn't say I'm optimistic about the five. I think we have a ton of really, really difficult democratic processes coming up and a lot of populations that don't believe or trust in the institutions that are designed to protect them. And one thing that we saw, particularly around COVID, was this initial wave of people saying, this is going to be really amazing, it's going to really bring people together, it's going to get us to this understanding, you know, there's science, there's not science. But that really didn't happen in a lot of markets. And what we saw was greater division. And I think one thing that is useful to message is that there are people out there looking to amplify those divisions. And if we allow them to do so, we're just going to become more fractured and more polarized. And in the lead up to elections, that's something that happens all the time. And it's something that unfortunately does often in some markets result in political violence and result in people getting physically hurt. So it's important to message, I think, the what's at stake here, the consequences of believing in conspiracy theories and misinformation. Um, and really try and disaggregate that with people just disagreeing with each other. Disagreement is great. Democracy is great. We need to have lots of different sides to the debate. But there are things that are true and things that are not true. And disinformation, even as a word, has become kind of drawn into this partisan debate recently, even over the last few months, which we saw with the DHS Disinformation Governance Board, which was disbanded. And I think it's unhelpful to think about those things in that partisan context. You know, this is not DHS standing up something because the Biden administration is in the White House. This is an effort really to, to counter something that we're seeing really fracturing society in a lot of different ways. Yes, uh, that, um, that board was set up to coordinate a lot of efforts that were started during the Trump administration. It is so ironic. And it is all tragic, it seems, that disinformation has now become identified with one side of the political debate rather than service of truth that everyone should be behind. Melanie Smith, thank you so much. And thank you for the work you do on behalf of truth and democracy. Um, stay the course, please. Thank you. I will. You've been listening to In Reality, the podcast on power, truth, and media. This podcast is produced by the very nice and very expert team at Podcast Partners, with special thanks to Paul Blanchard, Amelia Spooner, and Paula Robel. If you like how it sounded and you're a podcaster yourself, learn more at podcastpartners.com. And if you like the content of In Reality, please subscribe on our website, inreality.fm, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your listen. And if you like what you heard, please leave a review. Thanks for listening. 